0: Matthew chapter 6, and we'll be reading uh, Matthew 6, verses 5 through 13. Hear the word of our God. And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, therefore do not be like them But deliver us from the evil one for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever amen let's pray our father we do thank you for instructing us and we pray that we would uh, take to heart what christ teaches here that we would not pray hypocritically And that we would not avoid prayer but that we would come through Christ in a sincere relationship with you so teach us even this evening to turn to you in prayer teach us to trust you in prayer and teach us how to pray we ask in Jesus name Amen well before we consider the Lord's Prayer uh, and its particular uh, petitions, and there may be overlap in the next several weeks with this week or last week's sermon, but I, I want to just consider a question that uh, I, I hear frequently, sort of like we did with baptism and the Lord's Supper. What are the things that you hear? Now, this one, I actually, I have a, um, a, a folder of sermons I need to preach at some point. And one that I, I have three or four post-it notes I was able to throw away this week because it's the same question, every single one of them from different people, none of whom are in this room. But, but uh, that aside, still worth preaching. Um, and that is uh, the question, if God is omniscient and sovereign, why do we bother to pray? I I've heard... Non-Christians raise that question as a a cheap attack, trying to disprove something that they don't believe anyway. And when I say, uh, I should say unbelievers, people who maybe have professed the faith, but are looking for an excuse to exit. And so they throw out all the old uh, cheap shots, like if God is sovereign, why bother to pray? I've heard very sincere Christians Ask this question, maybe because they're struggling with the question of God's sovereignty. And, and so this seems like one of the big things that holds them up. Why bother to pray if God already has sovereignly orchestrated in his will all things that will ever come to pass? If his providence really is in control of all things and governs all things and he orchestrated it all before the creation of the world, then how is my prayer going to change anything? Or if it is going to pray, change something, then our doctrine of providence has to be adjusted, right? So sincere Christians asking that kind of question, um, it, it's, it's a good question. It's one I think we ought to consider, even if it's not one that troubles us particularly, because knowing ha- how to answer it or thinking through it uh, will, I think, make us even more confident about prayer. Uh, I, I think when I was asked this question by two separate individuals, one of whom's in glory and the other of whom doesn't come to our church anymore uh, a, a number of years back, I wasn't quite sure how I was going to preach the, the sermon in response. And, um, and, and then other circumstances in life kept me from preaching. So here we are tonight when we're focusing on prayer. And I want us to think about this question. Again, if God is sovereignly and providentially ordering all things that come to pass before the creation of the world and sustaining the world, as Ephesians 1, verse 4 and Colossians 1:17 say, or as Matthew ten twenty nine tells us, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of the Father in heaven. If that's true, and God is omniscient, all-knowing, uh, so that he doesn't need us to inform him, of anything in prayer, as verse 8 of our text actually says, doesn't it? The Father in heaven knows the things you need to ask him before you've asked. Then our mentality is to think, well, then why bother? And that isn't what Christ says here, is it? Verse 8 isn't followed by, uh, therefore, do not be like them, for your Father in heaven knows the things you have need of before you ask him. Therefore, don't bother. Uh, No, what does Christ say? Therefore... Here's how you pray, and in the here's how you pray answer, he actually I- instructs us to ask for bread, for deliverance, for leading. Uh, he asks, uh, tells us to ask for the very things the Father already knows. Why, why should we pray if the Father already knows? I have six, six reasons to pray even though the Father already knows. uh, I'm sure that we could come up with a lot more. I also am sure at least two of these overlap, but you'll forgive me for that. Here are six reasons why we ought to pray despite the fact that the Father in heaven already knows. First, the simple answer, just like last week. We should pray because Jesus tells us to do so. Right here in our text, 9 through 13, follow verse 8. We should pray because he tells us to do so. Well, that doesn't make sense. He doesn't give us a good enough transition. That doesn't make sense. That's a mystery. Well, yeah, there are a lot of things that are mysterious in the Christian life and in doctrine, aren't there? The things that we need to know he has revealed to us and the secret things of God, we just accept the mystery on God's terms. Why? Because he is infinitely above And beyond us. And so the fact that Christ says to pray, despite the Father already knowing all the things that you could possibly pray anyway. Psalm 139, you know what I'm going to say before it's even on my tongue. But pray anyway. That is enough of a reason. We need to accept the mystery and turn to our God obediently. But secondly, even though he knows what we're going to say, that, that actually instills in prayer a humbling aspect, doesn't it? The second reason to pray, despite the Father knowing what we're going to pray anyway, is that it's an opportunity to humble ourselves before God. In fact, the the mere reality of his majesty and our confusion over uh, why he needs us to ask uh, is itself something that should humble us. Rather than asking why, We ought to be confessing before him our sin, our unworthiness, and our need. Uh, And I know I referenced this this morning, but it's just one of those weeks where both sermons can collide with one verse. I think Job 40, verse 4, teaches us a lot about prayer as well as worship, which is what I reflected on this morning, worship. But Job is also teaching us something about prayer when he says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. And between Job 40 and Job 42, both start with Job uh, humbling himself before God and talking to God in a humble fashion. And there in those chapters, he declares, there's nothing that you do not see, do not know. There's nothing, God, that I can challenge you on, in other words. So I'm going to be silent. And that is one reason why we should pray, despite God already knowing, is to humble ourselves before him. A third reason. See, most of these are very short. So you can live with six, six reasons tonight. Third reason, because prayer is the means he has appointed. It's the means he has appointed for us to communicate with him. Um, Heidelberg Catechism 116, which we confessed together, uh, to make sure I grab the the handout again, to make sure I use the right language instead of what I wrote down. 116 uh, tells us, Because God will give his grace and Holy Spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing Ask God for these gifts. So it's the means He has appointed for us to receive His grace, to ask of his, I'm sorry, not to receive, to ask for grace and the Holy Spirit. Um, sometimes people make a big deal out of the fact that the Heidelberg Catechism uh, talks about the means of grace as only two. Word and sacraments, not prayer. Big deal made out of this at my seminary. Uh, big, you know, debate between the, the Presbyterians and the Dutch Reformed. And then Westminster comes in and says, no, 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 it's word, sacraments, and prayer. And I, I think it's a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous debate. Because right here in 116 of Heidelberg, it says, God will give his grace and spirit only to those who continually and with heartfelt longing ask him. So prayer is the means God has appointed by which we ask for and therefore receive his grace. It's it's an important means of grace. When we neglect it, we ought to expect a prayerless life to be an increasingly graceless life. We ought to feel a distance from God if we're not trying to talk to Him in prayer in a regular fashion, and likewise, if we are praying urgently, whatever hardships come our way, we ought to expect grace to sustain us in time of need. Right? Isn't that what Hebrews says? We come to the throne of grace, looking for grace, uh, looking for His sustaining in our time of need. So it is. God's means he has appointed for us to seek his grace and spirit. Just as there is no salvation apart from hearing the word, uh, the gospel in the word, so there is no salvation unless when hearing, we cry out to God for gospel grace. And as Heidelberg so well puts it, continue to do so, on a daily basis, right? Having been saved, we continue to ask for sanctification, for perseverance, and all the other graces that we need. And this is done by prayer. Fourth, despite him knowing all that we might ask anyway, we pray to express faith in his promises in Christ. Uh, Okay, he knows. But... As we pray, it is a way of expressing our faith in the promises that he has made to us in Christ and particularly expressing faith in Christ as our mediator, that he has taken on the position of a mediatorial high priest for us interceding so that we have this relationship and may may talk to the father maybe I could have listed this as a separate one, but I'll just include it under this expression of faith, is uh, that as we're expressing our faith by praying, in essence, what we're saying is we believe that we are adopted. We believe there's a relationship there. Now, when we think about relationships, um, every one of us in this room, I'm sure there's someone that uh, we can think of who could 90% of the time finish our finish our thoughts in the conversation, right? You, you know you've had the conversation before. You know what he or she is going to say when you have that conversation. Um, imagine if we just stopped having conversations with the person with whom we lived. Because I, I know what she's going to say anyway. So what's the point in hearing her say it? Or her hearing me say it? Uh, that... But that wouldn't be a relationship, would it? Our relationships, in fact, if we stopped having the conversations, despite the fact that, uh, you know, Katrina probably knows what Astrid's going to say in some of their conversations before she says it. So they just stop talking. Eventually, you would get to the point where you don't know what the other person's going to say, right? That's how human relationships work. Of course, God always knows what we're going to say. But we have this privilege of being in a relationship with him. And in a relationship, you have the conversation. It's, that's, what's the relationship without conversation? God speaks to us in his word. And he tells us as his children, come to me and talk to me as your father. Despite the fact that I already know what you're going to say, come and talk to me anyway because you are my adopted sons and daughters. So it's an expression of faith in the promises of God in Christ, particularly in our adoption. A fifth reason to pray, despite God already knowing, is to express gratitude. And this is emphasized here in uh, the first part of Heidelberg's answer 116. Why do Christians need to pray? Because prayer is the most important part of the thankfulness God requires of us. You think that's what most people would answer in evangelical churches today if if I was to go and wait at the door as people exited church today at, uh, or next Sunday morning, and if I was to ask, uh, what is the most impar- important way for you to express your gratitude or thanks to God? I think... There would be the uh, singing answer, right? Uh, during our praise time. Which isn't a completely wrong answer, right? Because a lot of our songs, at least the better ones, are our prayers. They're sung prayers. So that's not a horrible answer. But when we restrict it to singing and neglect focused, intentional, uh, typical prayer, that's, that's a problem. I think a lot of other people would answer, well, by, um, by the good work I do, right? I go out and I do good work for Christ throughout the week. My actions, my use of gifts shows the gratitude, right? He's given me talents. I'm going to go out and use them. And that's not 100% wrong either, right? If God gives you a great gift with sharing the gospel and then you don't share the gospel, that's not gratitude. If God gives you great gifts in any area and you don't use them, then you're failing in gratitude. So neither of those answers would be completely wrong. But I wonder how many people would answer if they hadn't grown up on Heidelberg with the most important part of thankfulness is prayer. I, I think we're all familiar with the Acts uh I'm losing the word acronym. Thank you. Acronym. I I wonder if any of you, while using the ACTS acronym at any point, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, have gotten to Thanksgiving and thought, ooh, I already covered most of my gratitude during adoration. Sometimes it feels a little repetitive. I find that a lot when I do the ACTS acronym, that I get to Thanksgiving and I think, well, wait a second, didn't I already do this part? Isn't that okay when we're reflecting on God and his attributes and his actions, and we want to go back and thank him twice in a prayer? I think it's a bigger problem that we so seldom do that. There isn't enough repetition of gratitude in our prayers. When he says, don't use vain repetition like the hypocrites, Christ isn't envisioning David when he writes one of his long psalms and keeps saying for his mercies endure forever. Oh, David, vain repetition. What were you thinking? No, we we know exactly what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about people who have a shopping list and they repeat the same thing over and over and over. Or, and I'm not trying to pick on this group of people, but I think it's easy to pick on this. 12 Hail Marys, right? You say the same words over, I, I always just, I think of a neighbor I had growing up who was Catholic. We played tag and he was way faster than me. And once I was right behind him, for some reason I had extra energy that day and he started doing Hail Marys, just repeating the words over and over and over again. It's the first time I think I ever thought anything about Catholic prayer uh, and and it wasn't a, a good impression I was being given um, certainly not the most uh, uh, sincere uh, version of, of a Catholic praying that I could have been given but but that kind of thing where it's just thinking well this deity who's out there will actually hear me if I say it a hundred times like like our kids right mom 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 I heard you the first time. And every time after that, just say it and wait. Just wait. But in a sense, that's what Jesus is saying. God doesn't need you to be vainly repetitious. Now, you can ask for the same thing many times in prayer, because Christ will talk about that in some of his parables. Be like the the widow uh, urgently petitioning for justice. Um, but uh, certainly he's not saying Don't be repetitive with thanking me. (laughs) And Heidelberg's right. God knows everything you're going to ask for. But isn't it wonderful that we can thank him for it as well? And thank him for it over and over as needed. And then sixth, even though he knows what we're going to ask him, we pray so that we might grab hold of assurance. Look at um, number 17, uh, 117 of Heidelberg. The third reason is given there. Third, we must rest on this unshakable foundation, even though we do not deserve it. God will surely listen to our prayer because of Christ our Lord. Now, that sentence ought to drive you to gratitude, the previous point, but also to assurance. Even though I do not deserve it, I rest in prayer on an unshakable foundation, Jesus Christ. So we pray even though the Father knows so that we might grasp hold of assurance, confident as we come to the throne of grace, that we will find help in time of need, grasping hold of assurance. Well, those are just six reasons. I'm sure we could come up with more. Feel free to text or email me your answers to why we ought to pray this week. I would love to see them. But there's another question I want to uh, consider for a moment briefly as well. And that is, what specifically are we to ask for? what is appropriate to pray for and what isn't now if you if you look at Westminster uh, its answers will uh, inf- inform you and I think Heidelberg does this as well at one point um, that we are not to pray for the dead but anyone who is living as long as they live we are to pray for and obviously they are confronting there the the Catholic idea of praying to get loved ones out of purgatory into heaven uh, when scripture teaches us only one thing and that is that when you die you're either destined for heaven or hell there's no in between and there's no question mark whether uh, once your last breath is out of your body uh, you are in your eternal state so uh, I think they're right to say that but but even if we set that aside I think when we think about what things are we permitted, or should we be asking God for uh, for ourselves um, we We still often struggle, uh, and so our catechisms I think can be nicely helpful here, uh, giving a balanced perspective when we put them side by side one of the things that has made the the catechism series, which we're so close to getting through together right uh two thousand and twenty summer. We'll finish it before this summer, but uh, one of the things that has been a hard task for me is that I didn't just pick one catechism. From day one, I was you know looking at Heidelberg, larger, shorter children's catechism, and then just for fun, I was looking at Luther and and uh, and um, the the, uh, not second city, uh, new new city, uh, catechism, and different things like that, uh, and mostly using Heidelberg and Westminster, of course. Uh, But they give different answers, and so that made it difficult. On the other hand, it's also interesting to compare how two different catechisms answer the same question. And I think here it can be really helpful. For example, Heidelberg Catechism 118, which we uh, looked at together a few moments ago, answers the question, uh, what has God commanded us to ask of him? Everything we need. Everything we need, spiritually and physically, as embraced in the prayer Christ our Lord himself taught us. Everything we need. That's, uh, that is Heidelberg throwing the, the doors to the throne of grace wide open, throwing wide open the doors to the storehouse of God's blessings and saying, ask. Like a a father throwing open uh, his arms and saying, ask whatever you want of me. I'll give you anything you want. Uh, Heidelberg is is throwing the the doors wide open. Shorter Catechism is going to qualify how we ask. And so Shorter Catechism answers the same basic question with... uh, In prayer, we offer our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will. Put those two thoughts together. In prayer, we ask for everything we need, spiritually and physically. Throw those gates wide open. Ask everything, anything that you need, spiritually and physically, but do it how? In a manner that's agreeable to his will. There's the qualifier. And I think both sides of this are very helpful. Everything necessary for soul and body. Not only our, our uh, debts and our temptations are listed, but also our daily bread. And I, I think that's really significant. Uh, in this room, I've had multiple conversations with people who... Uh, I, I think, in in a way that much of evangelical has been, evangelicalism has been, uh, are affected by without knowing it, Platonic idealism, uh, this uh, spirit good, body bad, spiritual things good to ask about, physical things bad to ask about. I was talking to one person whose uh, job uh, wasn't super secure and didn't have any other uh, seeming. Uh, avenues to pursue for, for work, and when I was suggesting, well, let's put it before the congregation so that they can be praying as well, there was this hesitancy to even pray just one-on-one with me about it, uh, because, well, there are sinners that we ought to be praying for the salvation of. There there are broken uh, uh, sinners throughout the world, we ought to be praying for foreign missions, that, that there are sins in my life, we should be really praying for my sanctification, all, all of which of course I agreed with, but the the thought seemed to be a guilt at asking anything physically, even, even though the welfare of this person's family was in question physically because of not being able to provide, and what does the New Testament say about that? The person who won't provide for their family is worse than an unbeliever. Well, then, someone who won't take seriously the ability to provide is is not. That's not a purely physical issue. Provision for your family is a spiritual issue, and so we ought to pray for it. Um, but also, it just has that implied thought that anything physical is bad. But. Christ's redemption is not only of our souls, it's also of our bodies. And our eternal state will not just be spiritual, it will also be physical. And the evidence, the sealing of that, the proof, says Paul, is that there's a physical body in heaven that has been resurrected, pleading your cause. So you ought to bring both the spiritual and the physical. Pray for your daily bread. Maybe that's pray for the provision of a new car, a new refrigerator, uh, 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 whatever. The ability to pay the electric bill, a new job, a better paying job, a raise at work. These aren't somehow worldly things to pray for because they affect our life-serving God and they are needful for our life. And so it's appropriate to pray for these things as well. We're whole creatures, and our future is secured as both body and soul in heaven. So our prayers should take both sides into account, and Heidelberg is nicely informing us of this. Everything you need for your body and soul, that's wide open for what you pray for. But then Shorter Catechism for things agreeable to his will. So we never pray for the ability to sin. We should never pray that we get away with sin. Uh, Maybe you've known this. I I was reflecting back to to college. I uh, knew someone who hadn't studied for an exam and were right there in the hallway together and was praying that he would get away with cheating and if he just got away with cheating on this exam this time, he would study better forever. Which, of course, we all know I- I- in a sadly humorous way how that works, right? Then, as they walk out of the exam room, the person is never saying, um, Oh, oh God, thank you, uh, thank you for this, and I'm gonna study better from now on. They're always saying, Well, that was a really easy exam, <laughs> right? We, ri- we write off our, our sin after the fact. No, that's not something that's agreeable to his will, nor is it uh, agreeable to his will that we pray for that which is to tempt us to sin. So it might not be a sin you're praying for, but maybe you're praying for something that would cause you to sin down the road, or something that would cause others to sin down the road. We must come with the proper attitude, praying for things according to his will. I think a great way to accomplish this is to learn Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. It's the epitome of praying for things, whatever the thing is, according to his will. This, this is what it says. I encourage you to, to look it up and, and read it this week, if not memorize it. The, the, the wise man praise, give me neither poverty nor riches, feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full, think stuffed, lest I be stuffed with stuff, and deny you and say, who is the Lord, or lest I be poor and steal, and profane the name of my God. That's, that's praying for all things according to his will. Don't give me too much so that I become proud. Don't give me too little so that I'm tempted to sin. Give me what is needed for my body and my soul. A good prayer to memorize and pray. Well, back to that question of the beginning. Why pray if God already knows? And I I hope thinking through any one of these reasons above um, gives you help in answering that. But here's an answer that I think is best to that question. If God doesn't know all things and isn't sovereign, why bother praying? We, we really ought to just flip it on its head if he knows all things and he's sovereignly in control, then I'm praying to someone who can and definitely will do what is right in response to my prayer and this situation. He has the power and he already has the plan. He's not going to be scrambling for it. But if God isn't sovereign, he's not in control, and he doesn't know all things, then why bother asking him? I might as well call up my next-door neighbor and ask for help at that stage. God knows all things. He is in control of all things. He is providentially in control of all things. So the question ought to be, why wouldn't we pray? Why wouldn't we pray? Pray with gratitude. Pray expressing our faith. Pray grabbing hold of assurance. Pray uh, to... uh, do so because he's told us to pray humbling ourselves before him pray with confidence because he is this god let our requests be brought before his throne therefore with confidence for all we need and in that spirit of proverbs 30 give what i need not what i want